coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and hopefully if you're listening from the southern part of Georgia, you came through as unscathed as is actually possible with Hurricane and then Tropical Storm Adelia moving through from the Big Bend of Florida into southern and southeastern Georgia and into the South Carolina coastal region. Thank you for listening. We appreciate that. Second half of the show, uh, a pretty frank conversation, one that needed to be had with the president and CEO of the organization, The New Disabled South. His name is Dom Kelly. He himself was born uh, one of three triplets born with cerebral palsy. He is a fantastic conversation. Can't wait for you to hear that. That is the second half of the show. Uh, What prompted me wanting to reach out to Dom was yet another casualty inside the Fulton County Jail. Four in the last month, this one involving... 34-year-old Samuel Lawrence, who had been suffering from mental illness, pleading with the Department of Justice for some recourse after abuse inside the Fulton County Jail. Once the DOJ received the letter, he passed away just a few days later, stemming, we assume, from the abuse. We're going to talk to Dom about that. I reached out to him because I saw his tweet earlier in the day that spoke to the fact that it's estimated that more than two-thirds of men and women in the United States incarcerated suffer from some form of a disability, whether it be mental abuse or physical abuse, and I was stunned. So we're going to talk with him about that. Frankly, I think this is a story that should be a lot bigger, not just locally, but even nationally. Can you imagine if, and by the way, in the calendar year 2023, it's not just four in the last month, it is eight so far in the calendar year. Could you imagine if a prison or prison camp or prison farm run by a Sheriff Joe Arpaio had eight casualties under his leadership, the sort of scrutiny he and his detention facility or facilities would be getting from the left, if not mainstream media on the whole. Pretty jarring stuff. We're going to have that discussion with him. First things first, uh, on the eve of Adelia, uh, Governor Joe Biden giving a brief statement earlier today, but about 90 seconds into that, decided to address the calls, largely from, of course, all from his party, and even then just from the fringe, for a special session to consider defunding Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis' office. Here are his comments. Uh, I did want to take just a few minutes to speak to some history that's trying to repeat itself over the last few days here in Georgia. Uh, Many of you will recall that in the final weeks of 2020, I clearly and repeatedly said that I would not be calling a special session of the General Assembly to overturn the 2020 election results because such an action would have been unconstitutional. It was that simple. Fast forward today, nearly three years later, memories are fading fast. There have been calls by one individual in the General Assembly and echoed outside of of these walls by the former president for a special session that would ignore current Georgia law and directly interfere with the proceedings of a separate but equal branch of government. Now my concerns with the Fulton County District Attorney's handling of this case and the special purpose grand jury have been well documented. 
We are now seeing what happens when prosecutors move forward with highly charged indictments and trials in the middle of an election. Simply put, it sows distrust and provides easy pickings for those who see the district attorney's action is guided by politics. So uh, first let me interrupt to say that here Brian Kemp is sort of trying to play both sides of the fence as much as he can while still being constitutionally bound, state constitutionally, well, and federal constitutionally bound. He wants to let the MAGA fires know, and Donald Trump himself, that there's nothing he can do. But he's also trying to also signal to them that, wink, wink, he thinks Fonnie Willis has some blame in this herself because, well, Donald Trump's running for president. And why should Fonnie Willis be bringing charges against someone running for president? But again, this is one of those scenarios where the statement's kind of backwards. Why is someone running for president knowing full well he or she is going to be indicted? Well, we know why he's running for president. It's not just to become president again. I mean, I'm sure there's a laundry list of things that Donald Trump would like to do again, notably maybe reopening the spigot from Saudi Arabia to his uh, daughter and son-in-law's coffers, and I'm sure he'll benefit in some way, shape, form, and fashion as well. But this is self-preservation. He's running for president because he knew he was going to be indicted and wanted to use the presidential campaign as a means for saying, well, I'm running for president, so I this is election interference, but also, if he were to become president, making these indictments go away. So Brian Kemp's being a little disingenuous there, and I'm going to call him on that. But let me be clear. We have a law in the state of Georgia that clearly outlines the legal steps that can be taken if constituents believe their local prosecutors are violating their oath by engaging in unethical or illegal behavior. Up to this point, I have not seen any evidence that D.A. Willis's actions or lack thereof warrant action by the Prosecuting Attorney Oversight Commission, but that will ultimately be a decision that the Commission will make. Regardless, in my mind, a special session of the General Assembly to end run around this law is not feasible and may ultimately prove to be unconstitutional. Damn, Donald. Governor Brian Kemp essentially said he doesn't see that Fonnie Willis did anything wrong. Maybe politically incorrect, given the fact that there is a wink-wink presidential campaign that she is Wink, wink, interfering with potentially with her proceedings. But at the same time, in the governor's opinion, he doesn't see that she has done anything to warrant a special session to consider removing or unfunding. The bottom line is that in the state of Georgia, as long as I'm governor, we're going to follow the law and the Constitution, regardless of who it helps or harms politically. Over the last few years, some inside and outside of this building may have forgotten that. But I can assure you, I have not. The oath I took with my hand on the Bible that's right behind me in January of 23 is the same Bible that I took in my inauguration in 2019. And in Georgia, we will not be engaging in political theater that only inflames the emotions of the moment. We will do what is right. We will uphold our oaths 
as public servants. And it's my belief that our state will be better off for it. And with that, Director Stallings and I are glad to answer any questions. So notably, the media there, Greg Bluestein from the AJC, first up, by the way, and a valid question. Not a whole lot of questions about Adelia, but a lot more about the governor's statement. And to be fair, he did spend about three and a half minutes <laughs> of the four, first four and a half minutes of this press conference talking about the pressure he's getting from Colton Moore in the General Assembly, this backbench legislator that no one's really ever heard of before from outside the Capitol building or his district. But I am literally struck by how it appears that Georgia is the epicenter of a new South, maybe, for the Republican Party, whether it be Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger, former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, and then there's the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Burt Joneses and the Colton Moores. There is this inner struggle within the Georgia GOP to decide, are, are we going to be a conservative-driven party that's about ideology, or are we going to be a Donald Trump fan club? You know, it's weird to think about this, but prior to Trump, we used to just have disagreement on issues and have to face an ideological opposition party and their media cohorts who weaved disinformation so disinformation so much so that that's all we had to deal with. The, the dealing with the cult movement atop that, it's like taking on two enemies. It's like one of those comic book cartoons or movies or whatever, where you're, you're facing someone and then they're able to clone themselves, but there's divergent versions of each other both firing at you. It's not easy <laughs> being left of center anymore and facing a two-headed monster who, by the way, wants to split from each other at some point in time, but also kind of work together because, you know, party first. And before I get to the first question that Greg Bluestein asked, because I think this is relevant, I was reading this uh, biography a couple weeks ago, Patricia Murphy wrote at the AJC, about Eric Erickson, the erstwhile heir apparent, I guess, of the Rush Limbaugh time slots across the country on a lot of conservative talk radio brands. And that in 2016, when he chose not to support Donald Trump, that he faced death. He and his family faced death threats. His daughter was being bullied in school to commit suicide. <laughs> and, well, that just leads to this question that Greg Bluestein asked. I've talked to at least five Republican state senators who have directly gotten threats because of what you just mentioned, because of all the inflamed rhetoric. Uh, are you worried about that? What is your message directly to Colton Moore and others who are, who are uh, inflaming those tensions? Well, look, I, I know full well about threats. You know, my family and I have been dealing with that over the last three years. Uh, so I understand how a lot of the legislators are feeling right now. Uh, it is wrong. It is unnecessary. And in the state of Georgia, when we have people that are making threats against our citizens, whether they're elected officials or not, we take that very seriously. And, and we will act on that. I've instructed Director Hosey and the rest of our law enforcement community to work with the General Assembly 
uh, to do just that. And this is where I just want to remind Brian Kemp at Al, Eric Erickson and company. And I'll, listen, it's not often I give Eric Erickson credit, but what he says from time to time needs to be said a lot more. And to the Clay Travises and the Buck Sexons of the world, Sean Hannity and the folks who are filling in for him today, who had Donald Trump on the radio just lobbing him softballs. And yes, sir, you're right, sir. It's that. It's that placating and soft-toeing and sidestepping and tap-dancing around the obvious with not just Donald Trump, but his kids and his base, that they're not welcome. Just tell them they're not welcome. But they can't do it. They don't have the gumption because of the worry they have of short-term political losses versus long-term party health, national political dialogue health. And dare I say it, a return to 2014? political civility, such as it was back then? I mean, if you had told me then that political discourse was going to be five times worse than it was at that point in time, I'd have told you, we're doomed. More on show after this on the America One Radio app, americaoneradio.com, or wherever you podcast. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. Hey, by the way, I am never one to not call myself out when I either speak out of turn or miss something and don't report on it. Specifically, if it's a story that I have been following somewhat closely. I have been following the Atlanta Public Safety Training Facility kerfuffle, Cop City. And uh, on Twitter, anyway, I was looking for some sort of feedback from our federal legislators. Senator John Ossoff, Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock, Nikema Williams, my congresswoman. When it comes to the signature match decision that the city is sort of waffling on, you well, we're it's it's a version of signature. What does that mean? Signature match? It's it's like a version of uh, slavery. It's it's slavery, right? <laughs> a version of slavery is still slavery. A version of signature match is still signature match. Something that the Democratic Party vehemently opposed when Republicans were advocating for it uh, as part of uh, election reform. One of the three has made a public statement. That would be my congresswoman, Nikema Williams. Uh, she released a statement, ew, how many days ago was this? Six days ago, so nearly a week ago, and I missed it, and I'm going to own up to that. I missed it. But I'm still a little nitpicky on it. Here's why. Uh, the statement, petition drives are a new chapter in Atlanta's democracy. I've spoken with Mayor Dickens, and he shares my concern over using an exact match signature process to verify petition signers as it has proven to disproportionately impact voters of color. I would argue the disabled as well, those with vision issues, those with uh, tremors, but we could go on. Anyway, her statement continues, the city of Atlanta must pioneer a transparent system that ensures everyone who is eligible and chooses has the opportunity per to participate in the petition drive. As the city of Atlanta continues through this uncharted territory, we must center our civil rights legacy with a petition system that ensures fairness for every Atlantan. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that statement. My question is this. She says, I've spoken with Mayor Dickens and he shares my concern over using an exact match signature process. But that doesn't mean they backed away from using the process that is a version of signature match. They're still going... Outside counsel, they've even brought... And, and I know the outside counsel part is supposed to be the transparent part, but they're still going to be using some semblance of signature match to try and verify that the 
more than 110,000 signatures that have been collected by the Stop Cop City, Cop City Vote folks over the course of the last four to six weeks, at least give them the, what was it, 60, 70,000 that they need. I mean, they're well above the threshold. And they did that on purpose because they knew that these signatures were going to be scrutinized with a fine tooth. They didn't know signature match. I mean, who would have thought, well, we're going to launch this petition and we're going to turn it in to our Democrat elected run city and they're going to use signature match that the Democratic Party in the state of Georgia vehemently opposed and chased the Republican Party away from using. Could not have predicted that, right? I mean, maybe they did. Maybe they did. I can at least appreciate that Representative Nakema Williams said something about it. Now, Representative Raphael Warnock ain't up for election for another five years. John Ossoff, however, is up for election in 2026, and all three of them, along with other prominent Democrats throughout Metro Atlanta and the state, are going to be going to a lot of these same activists and looking at them and saying, we need this energy in winning over the State House, the House of Representatives, and maintaining the White House. Oh yeah, and holding the Senate. Well, obviously, they don't have to worry about that here in the state of Georgia, but the Cop City movement isn't just famously as, as, as the uh, Atlanta police, uh, public safety, I'm sorry, training facility proponents have said, this isn't just a Georgia movement. After all, it's, it's interstate. And 2024, like every election cycle is, is a pretty important one with a razor-thin margin in the Senate and a razor-thin margin in the House, and the White House up for grabs. It's just awkward territory. And the silence, again, I, I, I hate to just take away from the fact that Representative Nakema Williams released a statement. My, my nitpicking, if I want to nitpick, is that I, I, I feel like she's saying, yeah, we're both concerned about it, dot, dot, dot. And then there's the quiet but, but it's still going to happen. Huh? It's, it's still going to happen. Say it again. It's, they're, they're still going to do it. But also still, there's the silence from <sighs> dreamy Senator John Ossoff and the Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock. We're going to talk uh, the second half of the show, by the way, with Dom Kelly, who is the president and CEO of New Disabled South. And while we're going to talk in large part about uh, disability advocacy and this conversation spurned from a tweet that I saw Dom post earlier today that spoke of the recent passing of another inmate inside the Fulton County Jail, a 34-year-old Samuel Lawrence, who was reaching out to the Department of Justice because he suffered from mental illness and was dealing with abuse physical and psychological abuse inside the Fulton County Jail and not just from other inmates. But we're also going to talk a little bit about how this story even sort of correlates with the Cop City movement and the stunning silence from mainstream politicians, pundits even, the media, on this story. There have been four casualties inside the Fulton County Jail just in the last month. 
And that, by the way, is half the number that have died inside the Fulton County Jail since the start of the year 2023. And we're just finishing up the month of August. We're only two-thirds of the way through the year. I really do hate to be macabre about this, but we're literally on pace for 12 casualties inside the Fulton County Jail before the end of 2023 at the pace we're going. And it's concerning to me that we're not hearing a whole lot of noise about this. If this were Sheriff Joe Arpaio, I keep saying this, if this were Sheriff Joe in Arizona with his 110-degree prison camp with the canvas tents and lack of water, we'd be screaming bloody murder about this on the left, right? That conversation and more with disability advocate, president and CEO of New Disabled South, Dom Kelly. When the Ron Show returns in minutes on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Take the Ron Show wherever you go. Download the America One Radio app to your smartphone and listen on the go. Or in traffic wishing you were on the go. The Ron Show on America One Radio. So, there are so many stories that are nationalish or sort of localish enough that some other really important stories don't get our, myself included, our attention. How about the fatalities inside the Fulton County Jail just since January? Are you thinking, oh, there's been one or two, there's been eight, and there's been four in the last month. And one of the more recent casualties is rather distressing in that 34-year-old Samuel Lawrence had passed away in Fulton County Jail after reaching out to Department of Justice, seeking some assistance because he, well, he needed it. And here to talk to me about that plight and the plight of the incarcerated while disabled is Dom Kelly, who is co-founder, president and CEO of the New Disabled South and uh, the New Disabled South Rising. Dom, thanks for joining me. I appreciate that. You caught my attention on Twitter this morning and I said, let's reach out and talk to this guy. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. So you actually were tweeting uh, about Samuel Lawrence's plight and fill us in a little bit on, well, first of all, some of the statistics you were sharing were, were, were just like mind blowing to me, but uh, give us a little bit of background on Samuel Lawrence's plight and why he hit your radar. Absolutely. So Samuel Lawrence had uh, reached out just a few days prior to his death, um, uh, asking for federal help um, because the conditions uh, of the Fulton County Jail were so bad. Um, he was uh, being denied water. He did not have a, a toilet to use uh, where he was um, where, where he was being kept inside of the jail and um, he was beaten and stomped and kicked in the head by guards. Um, and just a matter of days later, um, he died and uh, he was somebody who had bipolar disorder. Mm. And we know that uh, two thirds of state and federal prison populations uh, are disabled. The vast majority of them are black and brown men um, and most of them have mental illness or mental health disabilities um, or cognitive disabilities. So this is an issue that uh, is a racial justice issue and a disability justice issue, not just here in Atlanta, but across the country. Um, but especially here in Atlanta, when we have so many people who have died in the Fulton County Jail, um, just in, in, the, in recent times, um, it, is, it is disturbing to say the least. Um, 
that, that this has continued. So the reason I spoke of this story sort of flying under the radar, and, and I kind of believe it has, is because there's been so much oxygen taken from the room, whether it be uh, Trump indictments or Fonnie Willis. The Cop City saga has gotten so much amplification just since the spring of this year that this story would otherwise, I think, be a major story and folks would be sweating their jobs, if not already resigning from positions of authority because of this. Why Do you think that that's why we haven't seen as much noise made about this? I, I, I think that's part of it. I think that there has been a lot, um, a lot in the news cycle that people have been focused on. Um, it's unfortunate that people are so focused on Trump, especially because he... Mm-hmm. He was booked at that very same jail, and because of his privilege, he was able to uh, bail out immediately without even having to uh, be behind bars, right? Mm-hmm. And like, mm-hmm. we, you know, it, it, we we could talk about the the issues with um, the the prison industrial complex and in general, but it just is a it highlights really the disparities. Um, but people are so focused on so many of these issues. I mean, Cop City, I think, really directly correlates with this issue um this is uh they they really go hand in hand the the players who are responsible for um continuing to perpetuate these conditions in fulton county jail um are the same people who are championing cop city so Mm -hmm. um there's really no way that they're they're yoked together but um i i just it is it is disappointing to see the lack of mainstream media coverage on this issue. Um, there's been a little bit, um, but this, you're right. This is one of those issues that you would think you'd see a ton of outrage um, across the political spectrum, across, you know, across ideology mm-hmm. um, because human beings should not be treated the way that these folks who are incarcerated are being treated. And would, would you also agree with me that if this had happened, if we had eight casualties uh, within a calendar year so far, under the guidance of a Sheriff Joe Arpaio in Arizona, that this would be a major story? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I think our, our establishment mainstream Democrats, liberals, would be the first to jump on something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, and unfortunately, because we are we live in a in a you know what's known as a blue city, uh, a blue area, um, we it, these things kind of go neglected because they they don't paint the establishment of our city in a in a in a positive light, um, mm-hmm. you know. And I, I also think it has a lot to do with with racism and ableism. Um, the fact that we are talking about people with mental illness who are being killed in this prison, uh, I think there is such a stigma around, around disability, around mental illness. Um, that is a big part of the reason why this does not get the level of attention that it deserves. Well, and, and, and you speak of the silence on this issue, but again, you, you also talk about how this is sort of yoked with the Stop Cop City movement, and we don't see a whole lot of mainstream establishment, Democrat voices lending credence to the cop city movement either. John Ossoff has been pretty silent on it. Uh, 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 Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock as well. Nakema Williams, I didn't even realize, but like five days ago, she kind of snuck out a statement where she was sort of uh, insinuating that she and the mayor are both concerned about signature match, but so what? That doesn't mean they're not going to use signature match to verify uh, signatures on the pending referendum. But... (laughs) What is it going to take to get 
some prominent voices to speak to the plight of the disabled while incarcerated. I know your organization covers the South, the 14 states uh, in, in the South, but, but this isn't just a regional problem. This isn't just an Atlanta problem or a state problem. It is endemic. Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. One, it's going to take some really big narrative change work on the, um, on the, on the disability community. On, it's going to be our responsibility, and we are working on this broadly, um, for how we, we change people's view of disability. Um, there is such a view that uh, disability is to be pitied or that we are to be used for inspiration um, you know, I, I encounter uh, almost daily someone saying, oh, wow, you're, you're doing such a great job walking because I have cerebral palsy. And, mm. um, and yet they, they, that's the view of disability when people don't look at disability as, as our lives as whole. Mm. Uh, um, and they, so there, there is this view and the stigma around disability um, that I think we need to break. And, and, that, and, and that's, that's because they don't see the intersecting identities and the intersecting issues that people with disabilities face, people who have mental illness, who are incarcerated, they're, they're not looking at those, those intersections with, with the different facets of people's lives. So um, that, that, that's one thing. And then I, I think that it is also just the fact that pe people are afraid to talk about policing. Honestly, they're afraid to talk about the prison industrial complex, mm. honestly, because there is a lot of money in politics that comes from uh, police unions from the police foundation, of course, um, right. who's funding cop city. And there's, and it is a, it is a political issue that I think in the democratic party broadly, um, elected officials and candidates are afraid to talk about because they're afraid they will lose support. They're afraid, they're afraid they will be painted as this, uh, defund the police kind of, uh, you know, uh, candidate by the other side. And, and, you know, the reality is whether or not you believe in defunding the police, it, you, I don't think anybody should or, or can uh, uh, argue the fact that uh, this, this issue of Cop City is a democracy issue. The issue of people who are dying in Fulton County Jail is a disability justice issue. It's a racial justice issue. Like, the, these are not, um, the, the, this, is, this is not a hard thing to uh to it's not a hard conclusion to come to um unfortunately people need the political will and the courage to be able to mm. to stand up and and say and do the right thing um and there's just a lot of fear i think of 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 what that would what that would mean for their position of power if they were not to do it so if, if they were to do it so i think that is an unfortunate reality of just the political moment we're in Dom Kelly is the co-founder, president, CEO of the New Disabled South and the New Disabled South Rising. So you mentioned defund the police, and it brought me to thinking right away what a misnomer that phraseology even was to begin with. So that, to me, was a mistake. Uh, but but the, the movement, it, when you dug into it, was more about not taking funds from police departments or sheriff's departments, but actually using some of the funding for law enforcement for what I think you're driving at, uh, the, the need for mental health advocacy, for professionals to show up sometimes at police calls where a therapist or a mental health professional is more necessary than, you know, two cops with, with guns and tasers. Absolutely. Well, we, we, we need non-police crisis intervention programs desperately. I mean, we, we, have, we have some work that's being done by PAD here in Atlanta, 
Um, but just broadly, we, we need that. Um, we, we need more investment in helping people with their day-to-day lives, helping them make sure they put food on their table or they can pay their rent. Um, in, in Georgia, we have 7,200 people with disabilities on a waiting list for home and community-based services that would allow them to live in their homes and communities instead of in institutions and nursing homes. And some of these people have been waiting for 15, 20 years for oh these God. Medicaid waivers. It's awful. And and I, I sat this legislative session with plen- plenty of, of lawmakers who would would not consider funding a significant number of waivers because they, quote, didn't know how we would pay for it when Georgia is sitting on a $6 billion budget surplus. surplus. So these are the, I mean, I mean, to even go further, the city of Atlanta is one of the most inaccessible cities in the country. There was a a DOJ um, settlement in 2009 that they were supposed to improve the accessibility broadly of our city. And it's still completely inaccessible in so many ways. And instead we're spending $67 million of taxpayer money on a, a police training facility um, and trying to use signature match to stop getting it on the ballot. So the priorities are out of line and unfortunately the people are suffering. And I think that that's the call to action is we, we, we want our money being used in ways that are going to help our community. Um, And, and I I think we, we need more people thinking about the disability community when we're talking about how we use public, public funds. I almost feel like, and I'm going to paint an analogy here, but I almost feel like, like, like I want to be really white hot mad at, at local Democrats for not being better about this. But I almost feel like this is like the grade school situation where there's the kid that's getting bullied, there's the bullies, and then there's the kid that wants to be sympathetic to the kid that's being bullied, but gets kind of uh, peer pressured into joining the bullies. Is that is, is do you feel like that's an apt analogy? Oh, absolutely. I, I I think that there there are there are uh, bullies that we can we can very you know obviously point to. And you're right. There are the people who kind of stand to the side and maybe want to do something or say something, but they're afraid of losing their power or their status. Yeah. Um, they're they're afraid of losing their donors. Right. Um, the ramifications of that, and it's it's unfortunate. It's it's not new. I mean, this has been going on in politics for forever, but. Um, but I think I think it's a that that's a really great uh, a really great point. So the the dog whistle that I'm thinking of is the tough on crime mantra that mm-hmm. conservative politicians tend to run uh, campaigns against either an incumbent or, or or a politician from the left who's you know running who might be advocating for exactly what you're talking about uh, the, the the incarcerated while disabled the disabled who may be prone to incarceration. I, I think that's that's kind of what I'm drawing from there. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. I do want to come back because I want you to tell me a little bit more about your organizations and uh, how folks can uh, participate. We're with Dom Kelly, co-founder, president, and CEO of the New Disabled South. And we'll have him in just a few minutes here on The Ron Show on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back. We're with Dom Kelly, co-founder, president, CEO of the New Disabled South. Uh, a 501c3 nonprofit organization, the New Disabled South Rising as well, a 501c4. By the way, he has also served as both the Georgia Fundraising Director and the Senior Advisor for Disability for Stacey Abrams' campaign for Governor of Georgia. Uh, Before that, he was Senior Fundraising Manager and a Strategy Advisor for Disability at Fair Fight Action, the voting rights organization founded by Stacey Abrams. 
where he also created and led the organization's Disability Council, composed of prominent disability advocates and policy experts from across the country. He is also one of a set of triplets born with cerebral palsy and has been essentially a disability advocate since he was four years old. Uh, Dom, tell us about your organizations. And uh, I mean, you guys are obviously doing more than just wheelchair ramps at buildings. Uh, you know, we, we began this conversation talking about those who are incarcerated and disabled. And uh, the sad story that, uh, that led us to this conversation uh, being the recent passing away of an incarcerated individual who was suffering from mental illness in the Fulton County Jail by the name of Samuel, uh, Samuel Lawrence. But tell us more about what your organization uh, does throughout uh, the, the South. Absolutely. So we are the first and only regional disability organization in the country. Um, it, this, this came out of my working in the South and organizing um, and working in the disability advocacy space and realizing that there were um, a lot of us doing great work in our region, but everyone kind of working in silos. Mm. Um, and we really needed uh, this kind of table for us to come together and um, and think about the South holistically and how these issues intersect um, across states and, uh, and cities and how we can work together to create change. Um, so but that was really where it started. We, uh, we do policy advocacy work um, we are building a coalition of disability justice leaders from across the South. Uh, we are building and uh, doing, we have a grassroots organizing infrastructure um, that we're building uh, on our C3 and our C4. Um, ahead of the election year, we're really going to be launching an electoral organizing program to really drive out um, disabled people to the ballot um, across the South. Um, and then we're also investing in research because we are very under-researched um, as a community, except when it comes to trying to figure out how to cure us, which most of us who uh, have a strong disability identity and see ourselves um, in that way and are part of this movement are not looking for cures. We're looking for liberation and justice. So we are, uh, we are doing the research so we can have the data to back up our, uh, our policy fights, our organizing fights. Um, to be able to say not only are 66% of people in uh, prison populations disabled, but we want to be able to say here in the South, we know that X number of people regionally are uh, disabled and here is the intersection with race and here's the intersection with gender and we just don't have data like that. So broadly, we're a, we're a political home for disabled people in the South, a progressive political home. And, uh, and we're building out an, an infrastructure in our region that's actually just never been done before. Which I, I, I immediately come to mind uh, with a, a friend of mine from Louisiana. I don't know if you've reached out or ever talked to uh, Lamar White. Uh, he, of course, the publisher, editor of the Bayou Brief. And uh, yes. also, yeah, I, I was wondering if you, if you knew Lamar. He uh, as well is a, a progressive. Well, I say progressive. I think he's more moderate. But anyway, uh, of the Bayou Brief in Louisiana, he and I know each other from when I lived there for a while. And uh, he's, a, he's a pretty staunch ally and uh, a, f a fantastic voice in the disabled community. Yeah, I would love an introduction. I know I know Lamar's work, but I would love an introduction if you're willing to do that. Yeah, I know. We'll, we'll make that happen. He's good people. Cool. Uh, yeah. Even though, you know, I, I, I come from the Bernie side of things. He was more Hillary, but, you know, we still get along. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, so I was going to ask you, here's a tough question, and, and, and maybe this will be a little tap dance on my part. 
Uh, the most recent uh, mass shooting we saw in Jacksonville racially targeted uh, the individual who took his own life after killing three at the Jacksonville Dollar General, according to his father, also suffered from mental illness. Where does your organization, if at all, wander into this conversation about the accessibility of guns for those who are dealing with mental illness? Yeah, I mean, we are firmly and strongly against um, anyone being able to have access to the kinds of weapons that are used in these these shootings. I really just broadly, we are firmly against um, gun violence and gun ac- the ease of gun access, um, which we have seen here in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, with in recent years with this uh you know what others have dubbed this criminal carry which i don't really love that that term but just the the ease of anyone to be able to get a gun without a permit um and uh and and so yeah i mean i i think it is an interesting conversation when this comes up because people say well it's not you know the other side so to speak will say well it's it's a it's a people issue and we need to address mental health right um, but we need to address mental health we need better infrastructure for people with mental illness in this country but we also should not allow people to have just open access to guns open access to carrying guns um, I mean, it, mental illness or not, um, that is bad policy mm. and it's dangerous. Um, so absolutely we need, I mean, we, we are, we are in a mental health crisis in this country, um, on the heels of COVID. Like mm. this is, th- th- there is a lot for us to, to change about how we, how we deal with mental illness in this country and disability broadly. But, um, I, I think they are too, it is both. And it is. Like we do not need AR-15s in this country. Right. We do not need open carry. We need universal background checks. Like we we need these common sense gun control measures, and we need to address mental health at the same time. So when it comes to universal background checks and mental health, uh, the HIPAA ramifications come to mind. Though, do, uh, mm. are are there ways to work around that without violating HIPAA? I'm not. I'm not an expert on HIPAA, yeah. so I, I I don't I don't really I don't know the ins and outs of of how that kind of policy would work with HIPAA. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I I don't know that we should be screening for mental illness. I don't know that that's an effective way to to stop people from having guns. I do think that there are pieces about people's background that a background check would be able to tell us um, uh, whether they've been engaged in domestic violence, whether, you know, there there are certain things I think we'd be able to tell from a background check. So I, I don't think we, we need to go so far as to like figure out if someone has ever been treated for a mental illness before. Um, Cause I don't necessarily think that that would tell us what we need to know. Mm-hmm. The reality is mental illness does not cause people to, uh, pick up a, a, a an assault weapon and murder people. That that is not that that is not the cause of mass shootings. Um, I, I have plenty of, know plenty of people in my life who are mentally ill who have never <laughs> harmed a soul. Right. So um, the 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 issue is, is the guns, and I, I I I think that background checks specifically do not need to target people with mental illness, but broadly tell us who the people are that are that are trying to purchase these guns. Fair enough. We are with Dom Kelly, President, CEO of the New Disabled South and New Disabled South Rising. Folks who want to learn more about your organization, how do they go about doing that, Dom? 
they can go to newdisabledsouth.org or newdisabledsouthrising.org, and we're also across social media. All right. Dom Kelly, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate the conversation. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you. That's going to do it for today's Ron Show. Back tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. on the America One Radio app, americawonradio.com, and then after, wherever you podcast. Hear today's or any past episodes in full at ronshowatl.com or wherever you podcast by following The Ron Show.